Welcome to the 70th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series titled Contact, Art and the Pull of Print, art historian Jennifer L. Roberts will focus on printmaking as an art of physical contact, involving transfer under pressure between surfaces, a direct touch that can evoke multiple forms of intimacy. And yet it is simultaneously an art of estrangement. It requires the deferral, displacement, and distribution of artistic agency, and it trades in reversal and inversion. In the sixth and final lecture, Alienation, premiered on the National Gallery's website on May 30th, 2021, Roberts explores how the intricate and often counterintuitive effort of creating matrices for printing, wood plaques, copper plates, etc., has been a form of invisible labor for centuries. How do we think about the relationship between the time and skill put into the matrix and the value of the image it generates? Or, where does all the time go? This final lecture investigates the misregistration of time in print, especially in terms of the conflicts and convergences between slow and fast media that are frequently staged in contemporary printmaking. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this, the very last of the Mellon Lectures in this series. I'm speaking to you from a small spare bedroom outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm essentially stuck here for a while because it's only been two weeks since I had my first vaccine shot. So I'm speaking to you from a distance that's both geographical and given this pandemic, somewhat existential. I'm also speaking to you from the past, a distance in time. Today is May 2nd, 2021, and the earliest any of you will be seeing this video will be May 31st and others certainly much later. And although it looks like I, Jennifer Roberts, am the entity that is speaking to you, in fact, there are many other voices passing through this video stream, everyone at the National Gallery who has helped produce these lectures in particular. I am suspended in a structure of collaborative transfer that stretches precariously across time and distance. And although at first I was disappointed that I would have to cobble these lectures together remotely, I realize now that this format has been an unintentional meta-commentary on the whole thesis of these lectures, namely that print is simultaneously about contact and release, that it performs a kind of contact that's inseparable from estrangement, that it is a way of touching separation. Now, after pressure, reversal, separation, strain, and interference, the other keywords, today's keyword is alienation. And you may already have noticed that this word is not like the others, in that it doesn't appear to capture a physical process. It doesn't appear to get us down into the, into the thick immediacy of printmaking. If anything, it's the opposite. Alienation evokes detachment, absence, and loss. I've chosen it because here at the end of this series about contact, I want to be sure that we're not losing sight of the essential paradox of print, namely that it is about the pull as well as the press. Printmaking is an embodied art of pressing, touching, and rolling, but also, at the same time and in the same motion, it is an art of letting go. I'll try to get at this paradox today by exploring some of the strange things that happen to time and labor in printmaking. The main question will be, how do we think about the relationship between all the time and skill that goes into the making of a print and the time of the image that it finally generates? Or in other words, where does all the time go in printmaking? 
we'll explore the misregistrations of time in print, especially in terms of the conflicts and convergences between slow and fast media that are frequently staged in contemporary printmaking. Now, if you look up the word alienation in the dictionary, you'll find that it has three general meanings in the English language, all of which will be coming into play today. First, it refers to estrangement or the state of being estranged. Second, in legal discourse, it refers to the action of transferring ownership of something from one party to another. Both of these movements, estrangement and transfer, are part of the physical and philosophical adventure of printmaking. The third meaning is a little more of a stretch. Alienation also denotes mental instability or delirium. Now, I'm not going to be taking this one too literally. I'm not going to say that printmaking is, in fact, a form of delirium or mental instability in the pathological sense. But I do want to suggest that printmaking destabilizes us, takes us out of our so-called right minds, and requires us to think differently. Now, something that's been hinted at but not overly expressed in these lectures is the way printmaking complicates the idea of a direct plenary relationship between the individual artist and the final work of art. Despite all of the objections that have been raised to this model in art history and theory over the years, much of the art world still runs on the notion that the work and the artist are somehow synonymous, that the work holds some kernel of the artist's full and immediate presence in the moment of creation. Whatever we might say about this model of presence in relation to media like painting or sculpture, it inevitably and definitively collapses as soon as an artist walks into a print studio. It's not that the artist suddenly dissolves away or becomes irrelevant, but instead that they must open themselves out to a series of transfers and estrangements, must accept a certain distributed identity and all the vulnerability that comes with that as the very condition of being there. Let's consider the fate of an artist's gesture in the production of a print. That gesture is displaced. Even if the artist draws or etches or engraves directly on the matrix, every gesture, every mark, will then be transferred somewhere else. As the art historian Charles Haxhausen puts it, the object to which one does things, the surface on which one makes marks, is not the work of art. The work of art is but an imprint of that surface. For the same reason, the gesture is deferred. Not only is the mark made elsewhere, but it's made elsewhere later. The time spent on the original gesture does not produce the final imprint. For that, the artist must wait. Jasper Johns described the print shop rhythm of doing and waiting this way. Quote, you do something, then you have to wait for processing, then you do something else, and then you wait, like a long-distance call through an overseas operator. A charmingly 1969 thing to say. And all this is because that gesture is delegated. The artist usually relies on the skills of other people in the room, the printers, to move that mark over as faithfully as possible to the print. Even if the artist is working alone in the studio, they must still rely on the press, that blind alien machine that I've been talking so much about, to make the final culminating mark on the printing surface. In most print processes, as we've seen, the gesture is reversed taken out of the artist's habitual orientation or handedness and returned to them backwards in a defamiliarized way. The gesture is obscured. As we've seen when the print is actually printed, the mark made, it occurs in an invisible space squeezed between the press and the bed. The artist cannot even witness the delegation of their own gesture. And finally, it's often disjointed, something that we looked at in lecture three on color separation. 
what would be a unified or spontaneous series of gestures in painting, gets divided up into an array of programmed steps and pieces that bear little relation to the form or logic of the artist's original idea. So, displaced, deferred, delegated, reversed, obscured, disjointed. All forms of printmaking repeatedly stage and enforce the breakup of the artist's continuous presence. They all interrupt the direct connection between the mind and the hand, between the artist and the work. Printmaking is a series of artistic transfers. Printmaking is a form of distributed intelligence, distributed artistry, distributed time. The print is suspended among people and materials and machines, and it's suspended in time between moments of action and moments of waiting, moments of call and moments of response, moments of memory and moments of futurity. For most of this lecture, I'll be exploring these dynamics by focusing on a single process in printmaking, the process of relief printing, which produces a particular kind of alienation, a particular estrangement of labor, and a particular kind of transfer of time. I'll review it historically, then look at what it might mean to revive this particular kind of temporal misalignment in the present by looking closely at the work of contemporary German artist Christiana Baumgartner. First, a quick review of our four kinds of matrices. Relief printing is here, Defined by a matrix, again, in which the ink sits on the surface raised above the plane and is just pulled from the top of those surfaces. Relief printing with wood matrices was the first form of printing to be developed on a large scale. As with many modern technologies, the Chinese were actually the first to develop it in the form of woodblock relief printing. The Chinese also invented paper, a not unrelated development. Woodcut was in use by 1420 in Europe, and for centuries it became the preferred vehicle for the widespread dissemination of visual information. Copperplate engraving was also practiced by the 15th century, but woodcut was faster and less expensive to print than engraving, and one of its greatest advantages was that it could be combined easily with text. Letterpress is also a relief technology, so you can assemble a woodcut matrix in a form together with movable type and print the whole page together on the same press. So together, woodcut and letterpress generated the information age of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Here's a closer look at a woodblock, this one from the 16th century and a print made later from it. I wanna give you a sense of the elaborate topography of this printing block. Woodcut printing is, of course, printing, but it is also a form of sculpture. As Richard Benson has noted, a wood engraving is in the last analysis, a visual record of a carving. This is a highly deliberate relief carving, a fully three-dimensional sculpture that is designed not only to transfer an image from the top surfaces of the design, but also to withstand the effects of pressure in the press. Notice that the most deeply carved areas of the block are in the areas that correspond to large swaths of white space in the print. Large expanses of blank space must correspond to the deepest gouges on the block because in the press, the paper has a way of buckling into those open areas and picking up any accidental ink that might be lodged there. The block has to be deep enough there that the paper can't get down into the bottom. Notice that all of the delicate lines cluster together at close range. None of them sit off by themselves in an otherwise empty space because such a lone line, unsupported by its neighbors, would be very likely to break off under the pressure of the press. 
The most important thing to note here, though, is that there is an inverse relationship between the labor expended on the carving of the block and the density of the marks on the print. The places where the most muscle has been expended on the block are the places that are blank or empty on the print. The printmaker's efforts on the block are expended in order to disappear. The time spent carving is not directly registered in the print. I'll return to this fundamental inversion in relief printing, but first I want to move forward a couple centuries to the 1800s, in which a few tweaks to the traditional woodcut process allowed relief printing to power another surge in mass media. The rise of illustrated periodicals, books, and the visual news industry after and along with the Industrial Revolution. This updated form of woodcut was called, rather confusingly, wood engraving. It was like the older woodcut process, except that it used boxwood, which was a much harder, more dense, slow-growing wood with very fine, tight rings. Moreover, the boxwood blocks were sawn across rather than with the grain. This meant that the engraver cut into the end grain of the wood, which reduced the interference of the grain patterns and made the block much stronger and more durable in the press. It also allowed for much finer, more detailed images and much higher print runs. Now, because it could be combined with letterpress, because it was a high output printing matrix, and because it allowed such fine detailed engraving, Wood engraving actually lent itself extremely well to the transfer of detailed pictorial information. It allowed delicate crosshatches and other Victorian finesses to attain the status of industrial mass media. As an 1884 article in the Art Amateur put it, wood engraving was, quote, the process by means of which by far the greatest amount of knowledge, verbal or pictorial, is communicated to the world, end quote. Some remarkable reproductive images were generated in wood all the way up to the turn of the 20th century. This is a detail of a print by Timothy Cole, an important American wood engraver who specialized in the reproduction of paintings. Often, these were engraved after photographs, and in fact, wood engraving was the most common mode of disseminating photographic imagery in the 19th century. Now, remember that photography is not by itself a mass medium in the 19th century. You can't easily make 100,000 copies of a photograph in a darkroom with an enlarger. If you want that photograph to enter the orbit of mass distribution, you have to translate it into a printable surface, preferably a relief surface, so that you can print it in a press, preferably a steam press. Often, the way this was done was that a photograph would be projected onto a boxwood block that had been treated with a photosensitive emulsion. Then that photo block would be carved away. This is a rare example of a wood block that was prepared for carving, but for some reason was not actually carved. Late 19th century periodical archives are full of exquisitely carved photographs like this but also full of drawings and paintings and diagrams that were carved. In the 19th century, basically everything is going through the wood. Now, as you can imagine, this required a lot of work. Each individual illustration was labor enough, but imagine the scale of this operation in the era of Harper's and the London Illustrated News, etc. Tight publication deadlines and ravenous demand for illustrations meant that millions upon millions of images like these had to be carved out. Unsurprisingly, a culture of industrial production emerged around wood engraving. There was elaborate division of labor among illustrators and an assembly line approach to completing the work, but it was still all done by hand. Any way you slice it, relief printing was a lot of work. 
So it's worth returning then to the paradoxical character of this work, the way the labor of relief printing does not actually show up on the page. Let's think about how you make a simple line in most visual media. Let's say drawing. It's pretty straightforward. You pick up a pen or pencil and make a gesture and there it is on the paper, a mark, a line. The time and effort you put into making the line is directly captured by the line itself. A simple line is also relatively straightforward to produce in many kinds of printmaking. In copper plate engraving, for example, the engraver pushes a line into the copper. The incision on the plate will be filled with ink and printed, and although there are some intermediary steps, at least the engraver's line eventually translates directly to the mark on the final print. But to make a line in a woodcut or a wood engraving, the printmaker does not cut a line. The printmaker has to chip around a line-shaped area leaving the line standing. The unworked surface of the block becomes the marked surface of the print, and vice versa. This basic inversion at the core of cutting in relief has huge implications, one of which is the disruption or inversion of the relationship between labor and result. The artist's efforts are actively reversed, expended only in order to disappear. The finished print is made by the areas the artist does not touch. What does this mean for our millions upon millions of woodcuts and wood engravings circulating throughout the world for five centuries? It means that not a single inked mark on any of them was actually carved by a human being. In the late 19th century, as wood engraving became essentially a method of industrial image making, writers on art began to think seriously about this bizarre situation. And it began to be loosely associated with other forms of the alienation of labor that were being theorized around capitalism. The most insistent and loquacious commentary on this came from the British writer and critic John Ruskin. In his book Ariadne Florentina, a published series of six lectures on engraving given at Oxford in the 1870s, he made a vivid accounting of the labor economy of wood engraving. The most interesting illustration, I think, in his essay is this one. It's a schematic image of a crosshatch pattern, crosshatching being a standard way of creating tone out of line in the graphic arts. This was just a two-inch square section of a shadow in an image that had been published in the popular British humor periodical Punch. Ruskin talked at length about the way this image was made, and particularly about the difference between the time it took to draw the source image, which was a drawing, and the time it took for the wood engraver to translate that drawing to the boxwood block. Ruskin argued that whereas the artist drawing the source image was able to make the crosshatch pattern in just a few strokes of the pencil, the wood engraver that then transferred that image to the block had to leave all these lines standing, which meant that he had to chip out all of the interstices between the lines, making thousands of cuts in order to do so. In what he calls this wanton and gratuitous crosshatching, Ruskin points out that, quote, there are about 30 of these columns with 35 interstices each, approximately 1,050, certainly not fewer, interstices to be deliberately cut clear to get that two inches square of shadow. Now calculate or think enough to feel the impossibility of calculating the number of woodcuts used daily for our popular prints and how many men are day and night cutting 1,050 holes to the square inch as the occupation of their manly life. And Mrs. Beecher Stowe and the North Americans fancy they have abolished slavery. 
Ruskin is so disturbed by the time expended on the holes between crosshatches that he goes so far as to associate relief cutting with slavery. This is an exaggeration with which we cannot be comfortable, but it's not irrelevant that he's willing to associate wood engraving with the ultimate form of alienated labor. W.J. Linton, an expatriate British engraver working in the U.S. and probably the most influential writer on wood engraving after Ruskin, simplified the motif but maintained its essential spirit in his own manual on wood engraving. He reproduced the simplest possible crosshatch, really more of a tic-tac-toe pattern, and demonstrated that whereas a draftsman could make this pattern in four simple strokes, it would take a wood engraver between 32 and 36 cuts in order to chip away the external edges and interstitial spaces and leave the pattern standing in relief. Now, ironically, this is exactly what it took to produce the illustration on this page, which is a wood engraving set into the text. These cross-hatching diagrams became something of a standard motif in period commentaries on relief printing. You'll find them in many other similar manuals and commentaries. They're diagrams of loss and frustration. For Ruskin, they're a cage, trapping artisanal time and effort behind bars where it wastes away on shadows. Linton's tic-tac-toe game is a cruel exercise, much like the real tic-tac-toe where no one wins. As an incipient grid, Linton's lines also suggest the spaces of measurement and accounting, but all that they measure is an account out of balance, where work is expended but never recuperated. The extremity of the situation in industrial relief printing brought out a truth that's always latent in print, but not always quite so obvious, that in printmaking, time is always out of joint. Here in these crosshatches, the alienation of labor and time is expressed as a form of failed synchronization. The time it takes to draw the image does not equal the time it takes to carve it. The time it takes to carve the image does not equal the time it takes to consume it. And the time it takes to carve the image is even disjointed within each carving, each chip or gouge. Ruskin worried about the speed with which these carvings had to be made and wrote at length about his fear that the hand of the artist, the woodcarver, would get ahead of his mind and the necessary self-conscious presence of the artist would be dismantled. As he said, the hand must be, quote, continually receiving and obeying orders, end quote, from the mind as it carves. The moment he says that the hand moves independently and performs some habitual dexterity of its own, it is base. And he goes on to define this dexterity as so wrong as to be sinister, playing on the moral connotations of the dexter-sinister left-right opposition to drive home his point about the dangers of manual skill getting ahead of the brain. How is one to tell whether one's lines are deliberate instead of habitual, dexter instead of sinister? Ruskin calibrates these qualities in terms of speed. The faster the work, the less chance that the mind has to control muscular action. Quote, when the hand moves at the rate of 10 lines in a second, it is indeed under the government of the muscles of the wrist and shoulder, but it cannot possibly be under the complete government of the brains, end quote. In order to ensure the government of the brains, Ruskin sets a speed limit on carving that he doesn't precisely stipulate, but that seems to lie somewhere between two or three seconds for each short line or chip. So printmaking in this situation is riven throughout by a kind of alienation, an alienation of the hand from the mind, the draftsman from the carver, the carver from the print. 
And this is all expressed in terms of asynchrony, of the loss of some ideal experience of presence and possession of the image that is brought about by relief. Now, for all of its centrality to the rise of a new culture of mass images, by the mid-1890s, woodcut as a mass medium was essentially over. What killed it was the development of the halftone, which was able to translate photographs and artwork directly into textured printing surfaces without the sculptural mediation of the woodcarver. Turning a flat, continuous tone image into a printable relief surface, the goal of all of the energies of mass media in these years, could now be done much more quickly without the peculiar imbalances of the woodcutting process. Relief printing in wood as a mode of mass reproduction virtually disappeared from the scene during the 20th century. Woodcut did play a role in modern art, but it was as far removed from the industrial model of wood engraving as it could possibly be. Instead, it took the form of the rough, primitive, materially immediate forms that emerged in expressionist woodcut, particularly in Germany. Prints like these attempt to purvey an image of rough immediacy and presence, with every mark expressing itself and fully recording each gesture of the artist. These are images that attempt to preserve printmaking as a project of presence, a project of immediacy instead of intermediacy. They can never fully succeed, of course, but they do try to minimize the alienation that is at their core as prints. But as we've entered the 21st century and the digital age, when we're confronted with ever faster processing speeds and new difficulties with synchronizing ourselves to each other and to our media environments, woodcut printing is suddenly in a position to serve as a process for exploring these experiences. The German artist Christiana Baumgartner has re-engaged with the temporal misalignments of relief cutting, resuscitating its asynchronies and its structure of misregistered labor, all in order to comment on contemporary life. Baumgartner was born in 1967 in Leipzig, which was at the time a part of East Germany. She spent the first half of her life there, her impressionable years. Then after the fall of the Berlin Wall, she was in a democratic unified Germany. She was educated in Leipzig at the Academy for Graphic and Book Arts, and Leipzig is a city famous for its long and vibrant book printing history. She had a traditional printmaking education in which she spent a lot of time copying Durer woodcuts. She was thoroughly steeped in the German woodcut tradition from Durer through to Expressionism. Then she went to the Royal College of Art in London to the printmaking program, but once she was there, she found herself drawn to what she called the smooth surfaces of other media, particularly new media and particularly video. She was very interested in video, but somewhat frustrated by its distanciation. In a way, she said, quote, the video image is only a formula, it's not really there, end quote. In 2000, she returned to Leipzig and began attempting to find a fusion of these two technologies, and she hit on the idea of carving video stills as traditional woodcuts. This is her process. First, she selects a still from thousands of video frames that she has shot. She adjusts the still in Photoshop and translates it to a black and white horizontal raster image. She decides the gauge, or the DPI, we might say, of the raster, usually based on the scale of the image. Uh, and this rasterization, these horizontal striations, are a reference to the horizontal scanning pattern of the VHS video, but they're not a direct translation of that pattern. As she has said, this method allows her to combine the earliest popular image reproduction technology, woodcut, with the most recent, video. 
Both woodcut and video, after all, deal with images in a binary way, an array of on and off. Then she carves the image. Her images are hand-carved with an adapted cheap kitchen knife, carved into poplar plywood. And this is part of her East German background of austerity, actually. They couldn't get real carving tools, so they had to cut down and resharpen cheap kitchen knives. You can see the transferred ink here, and then the sections that she has cut away. Here's another detail, including her studio assistant. These images are printed then by rubbing the back of the paper with a standard Japanese barren, but she sometimes uses the edge to get more pressure than she normally would. These prints are usually too big for a press, and poplar is too soft for a press, so they're always printed by hand, on handmade kozo paper, usually in small editions of about six. Now, unlike wood engravings done on tiny blocks of boxwood, these are often truly enormous prints. This is Transall of 2002. It's 13 feet long and four feet high. As she has said, quote, certain images need to be big. The first day I worked on this print, I cut only three lines, and at the end of the day, my hands were shaking, end quote. She frequently works with images of aircraft, especially military aircraft. This is part of a group of works based on video that she shot of a television screen broadcasting a World War II documentary. She was watching this documentary in a motel uh, and was interested particularly in a section where the documentary showed bombs falling onto a moving train. Notice that the interference between the video and the TV screen here produces a moiré, which she faithfully translates into the woodcut. This is Luftbild, the largest image from this series. And you can see her here standing with the original woodblock to give you a sense of scale. Manhattan Transfer is a print that is a shot taken of a tourist helicopter in New York. Notice the chain link fence, all of the detail in there, and also in particular the blur of the helicopter's rotor blades. Throughout her work, her ability to show blur in cut wood is really rather incredible. All along, Baumgartner was also working in landscape, especially woods, generating a kind of grid between her own horizontal woody striations and that of the forest itself, which is like a natural version of her own raster. Her most recent work is based in natural light, particularly reflections in water surfaces and especially light effects around the moment of sunset. This is Nordlicht, a recent work based on photographic light phenomena, especially flare, that sense that you get of the burnout of the camera when you are facing the sun. Now, the question one has to ask about any project like Baumgartner's is, why? Why take a video image that was captured in an effortless microsecond and spend months carving it by hand into a sheet of plywood? Why would anyone volunteer to be a 21st century woodcut new media artist? Baumgartner's work suggests that the woodcut printing process offers solutions or insights for contemporary life that are not available otherwise. In taking up woodcut as a mode of reproducing an image captured in a faster medium, we might say that Baumgartner has willingly re-entered the cage that Ruskin so vividly evoked in the 19th century. 
It's important to her to get into that space of disappearance and discomfort that Ruskin saw in crosshatch relief carving. It's important to occupy, to experience the absurd imbalances of labor between capture and translation. There is something urgent and contemporary about this condition for her. Here's a detail of Manhattan Transfer, which really is a perfect example that we should add to these diagrams from the 19th century of misaccounted, desynchronized labor. Not only does the chain link fence resemble and reenact the crosshatching in the Ruskin punch image with its line raster meaning a diamond or lozenge shaped network, but it's also a section of the print that she fully understood to be the most egregiously difficult of all of her laborings. Quote, this one took me the longest time to cut. I had to cut the whole line grid on top of this mesh. It took forever, end quote. And it did, in fact, take her two years to carve this print. Baumgartner openly embraces the split between fast and slow that arises between these two media. Quote, woodcut is such a manual technique and the body is so intensely involved in it that it really slows you down. For me, it was important to deal with high speed and slowness together. End quote. In 2004, Baumgartner completed a 25-part woodcut titled simply One Second. It was based on a single second's worth of video that she shot from a moving car while passing a nondescript woody area. Each print corresponds to a single frame of that video, representing one twenty-fifth of a second. Baumgartner painstakingly carved and printed each frame. Ruskin had lamented the lost time of the wood engraver who poured hours of effort into reproducing an image that was sketched in seconds and would be consumed in seconds. Wood engraving bumped or jolted the artist out of synchrony. Woodcut, in other words, is about not being there, not being in time, being out of phase. Rather than attempting to recapture some sense of synchrony or presence, Baumgartner actively cultivates this alienated state. She does this by suspending her work between temporal conditions that are inherently non-synchronous and that lie largely outside the range of conscious human perception. On the one hand, she works with video, which captures and transmits imagery faster than the human eye can perceive. On the other hand, however, she works so slowly that her progress on the block can barely be measured. And she works with wood, which in its own way represents a temporal structure, a dendrochronology, that eludes human understanding. There's a connection between the long-term seasonal laying down of tissues in the wood and the laying down of frames in digital video, but neither is really human time. Wood is too slow and video is too fast. Baumgartner shows a preoccupation with non-human perception and post-humanist models of apprehending time, whether in the slow time of wood or the fast time of video, we're trapped in the cracks, the spaces between timescales here. Now, there are a lot of ways to take this observation, but I'd simply note that by working in woodcut, Baumgartner recognizes that the state of being out of phase, that state of alienated time, seems pretty relevant to our contemporary lives, where we're all scrambling to adjust ourselves to timescales that exceed us, whether the rapidity of digital technologies or the need to recognize and respond to the long-term rhythms of global climate change. For Baumgartner, making woodcuts is a way of inhabiting and acknowledging this paradoxical condition. Baumgartner cuts into the woodblock at regular intervals to create her horizontal rasters. The image is built on a structure of intermittency, with her cut white spaces separating the positive marks that make up the visible image at a specific frequency. 
It's interesting that so much of her subject matter is also concerned with intermittency, with beats and periodicities, with representing the division of time and space. In these three examples, for example, we have turbines and propellers slicing up time and motion. I don't think it's an accident that Baumgartner is so drawn to propellers, propeller blades, I should say, because on some level, she seems to recognize the connection between these structures and her own blade, her own cutting tools. Here we have Baumgartner exploring the slow frequency of her blade, cutting apart the block over the course of months in relation to the rapid, eventually blurring frequency of the propeller blades that are all over her work. Both Baumgartner and the helicopter are carving up time, though at drastically different rates. Moreover, both her blade and these propellers are used for transfer, for transport, and for translation. They are figures of a kind of in-betweenness, an intermediation in themselves. Two years ago, I saw Baumgartner's retrospective exhibition at the Davis Museum at Wellesley College in Massachusetts. I was struck by the very latest work involving light effects and sunsets. This is Nordlicht, 6.08 p.m., made in 2018. What I particularly noticed was that it was actually physically difficult to look at the new work, much more difficult than in the earlier prints. There is no comfortable distance or position from which to see these new images. They vibrate in an almost aggressive way, refusing to settle down, and I found that I frequently had to look away from them to recuperate so as not to get a headache. The white suns and flares seem to sear into the eye. It seems that Baumgartner has managed to capture at the level of bodily perception the explosive effects that have been such an important part of her military subject matter, like bombs, up until now. Baumgartner has talked about how she was almost embarrassed to start doing sunsets because they're such a cliché. But she keeps being drawn to their violence. As she says about them, quote, I really like how the sun burns into the picture and burns into your retina, end quote. But at the same time that she insists on an immediate bodily sensation caused by the sunset, on its corporeal impact on what we might call its contact, she also connects the sunset to absence and distance and that which cannot be reached. She's talked about these sunsets in terms of the youthful vacations that she took in East Germany. East Germans were not allowed to travel, so they all had to gather on the Baltic coast for beach vacations. Everyone would gaze into the sunset as it fell into the west, and sometimes, she says, quote, you could just see on a very clear day some distant Danish island, end quote. In other words, the sunset for Baumgartner represents a reach across space to some inaccessible elsewhere, in this case the west. This is a print that captures that paradox of press and pull, contact and release, touch and distance quite beautifully. Another form of loss or alienation that these sunsets make us feel is the lost labor of the printmaking process itself. These prints are the first moments in her work where she allows a fully blown out white area to occupy the surface. Physically, on the woodblock, this white sun is a hole, a crater, that Baumgartner has completely cleared from the surface. It's a time sink that I've been talking about all day, that gouged out white space that doesn't signify. This sun, then, is somehow both a star and a kind of black hole, the place where all that unrecuperated time goes but cannot get out again. But Baumgartner carves this negative space in such a way that it becomes positive, forces its way momentarily into the viewer's awareness like a flare. 
I like to think of these sons as giving us a way to feel the alienations of their own medium and its history. Giving woodcut a presence without compensating for its loss, marking that loss, that misalignment, that disjointedness as perceptible and sensible as something that might sear into us. Her work is sometimes interpreted as a kind of recuperation of the lost art of slowness in the era of digital speed, as if her slow procedures could return us to an era of ease and time, an era of leisurely contemplation and presence with images. I disagree with this assessment, and I think the sunset pictures are in some ways the best rejoinder to it. As with all of her work, but just on a more aggressive perceptual register, these sunsets keep us off guard, between cuts, between times, keep us in contact with a state of exile. Bill Ivins, in his canonical 1953 book, Prints and Visual Communication, suggested that the stars served, in essence, as the first prints. Ivins argued that the advancement of useful scientific and technical knowledge required printed images and the exactly repeatable pictorial statements that they allowed. With printed images, precise descriptive information could be shared, compared, and edited across space and time. He spent much of the introduction to the book arguing that civilizations prior to the advent of print were fatally hampered in any attempt to compile and develop shared knowledge. But he did admit that the Greeks had made great strides in astronomy because, as he put it, quote, every clear night provides the necessary invariant image to all the world, end quote. The stars acted as the first prints. Printing is an echo of a deep historical relationship with the heavens. For Ivans, the stars are a model of visual coordination and synchronous knowledge. Anyone can look up from two distant points and see the same sky at the same moment therefore aligning themselves in a moment of shared experience with a shared image, in the same way that two people looking at the same print in two different cities could be synchronized. Prints, like stars, are synchronization devices. I'm showing you details of engravings of constellations in the 1655 edition of Johann Bayer's Uranometria. Prints about the stars, which are themselves perhaps like prints. Now, I heartily agree that prints are like the stars and that printing is an echo of our original relationship to the heavens. But as Baumgartner's burning, time-ripping sunsets remind us, it's not because the stars are synchronous. It's because the stars are asynchronous. When we look up at the stars, we're seeing light that has traveled thousands or millions or billions of years from its origin. We're looking at the past, at star fossils. The stars in any given constellation inhabit different times, different distances. None of them are truly present to us or to each other. We can never see a star as it is in the moment. We can never see a star live. The stars are not synchronous with us or with each other. This print by contemporary artist Sarah Z is part of a portfolio that wrestles directly with these questions of time, connection, and synchrony through a juxtaposition of print and stars. The portfolio is titled Midnight, and it's a set of 12 prints made in a combination of screen print, digital print, and laser engraving. Each print features the front page of a newspaper dated January 1st, 2014, from a different city around the world, Santiago, New York, Cairo, Beijing, etc. The original images printed in the newspapers have been cut out and replaced with photographs of the midnight sky above that city on that moment in which a new year turned over. 
Taken together, the prints appear to deliver to us a form of geosynchrony, the world sharing an instant through this combination of printerly and astronomical synchronization. The common currentness of newsprint meets the common currency of the stars. But with even a moment's consideration, this illusion of presentness fails because, of course, we're actually looking at a lapse in time, a time lapse. The cities of the world do not really celebrate midnight on New Year's Eve simultaneously. In fact, it's on New Year's Eve that we arguably become most aware of our shared asynchrony as we watch other cities celebrate on different schedules, midnight slowly rolling around the planet, taking its time. The jewel-like printed stars that have taken over the front pages also speak to that separation in time and space. No city sees the same midnight sky. Each has its own divergent heavens as it looks up from the convex surface of the Earth. The stars do not, in fact, present the same invariant image to all the world. And of course, each star in each image resists synchrony as well. Each takes and takes up its own time. Speaking of this and similar works, Z has said that she wanted to juxtapose the printed structure of current events with images that suggest vast times and spaces, images that would somehow resist the very notion of an event. Here she uses the stars, again perhaps the first analog for print, to complicate the newspaper's appeal to any simple synchronicity. Like Baumgartner's work, which reaches across timescales so as to make us feel the stretch of our own suspension between them, Z helps us see that print shows us our separations as well as our connections, that it can be a vehicle through which we see not sameness, but difference and distance and divergence, and which shows us the need for the constant effort it takes to stretch across these gaps in time and space. So we're reaching the end of this lecture, talking about cosmic distances, asynchrony, stars, black holes, and alienation. It all sounds a little science fiction-y. And on that note, I want to conclude this series by returning to the beginning of this project, or at least to the beginning of its title. About five or six years ago, when it began to dawn on me that this project could be a book, I started playing around with working titles. My first idea was this, The Matrix. I liked it a lot at first. It would gesture to that generative surface at the heart of printmaking, The Matrix, and all the defamiliarizations that happen there, and it would instantly convey the futurity of printmaking, its relevance to our own lives of technological mediation. I also liked it because it would give printmaking the gothic air of dark mystique and rebellion that I think it deserves. But there was something off about the idea, because the dystopian model of the Matrix in this film didn't match up with the matrices that I was encountering in print studios. In the film, the Matrix puts people to sleep and fills their minds with illusions of normalcy so that their bodies can be literally harvested. The Matrix, in other words, is a tool for exploitation and control and mainlined propaganda. It's an eviscerating tool of illusion and false consciousness. This is both too dystopian and too familiar a model, a little too close to, way, to the way print is already understood as a tool of illusionistic mass dissemination. So. That wasn't the right movie. This, I decided, was the right movie. Contact, a 1997 film written by Carl Sagan and Andrian, starring Jodie Foster as a scientist who intercepts a radio signal from an interstellar civilization and has to try to interpret it. 
In order to decipher the signal, the film's human characters need to adjust themselves to unfamiliar forms of organizing dimensional space, embodiment, extension, and compression in time. They need to confront the radical decentering that comes from imagining oneself in reverse, from the perspective of another looking back across a distant gap. And unlike the characters in The Matrix, whose bodies and minds have been disconnected, the characters in Contact need to be awake to the effects of this estrangement, its risks and its potentials, in both body and mind. This film about fictional contact with aliens gets us closer to the real contact with alienation that I've been trying to evoke in these lectures. Alienation is inherent to print. Print forces us outside of ourselves and asks us to attend to this experience. Every print is a transmission from an unfamiliar world, a world of reversal, deferral, disjunction, and darkness. And yet this world can only be made and known through contact. Its distance emerges along with its proximity, so that it is both within us and without us. Printmaking is an art of estrangement and dispossession. As such, it can be prone to dystopian results. It can put us in Ruskin's alienated cages if we lose track of it, if we fall asleep. But if we're awake to it, as artists or scholars or simply as engaged citizens of the contemporary world, we can seize upon its explosive potential for recognizing difference and otherness in all its forms, including our own perpetual otherness in the face of all others and the way it can keep us in direct contact with this destabilizing reality. When I've been talking about contact in these lectures, then this is what I've been reaching for, the way printmaking interrupts normative experience, flips us around, turns us inside out, takes us outside of ourselves. The way it compels us to confront and interpret different forms of orientation, different forms of knowledge, different forms of sensory experience. The way it brings us into contact with otherness, alienness, and makes a space for attending to difference. The way it shows our dependence on the relationships that make up the meshwork of our collective lives. The way it suspends us and distributes us, but always in such a way that we feel the pull. Thank you.